says 1 Corinthians 18 to 25, I think in your bulletin, but it's, uh, it's um, 26 uh, to 31 are the uh, verses we're looking at. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Hear God's word to you. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this word. And uh, we thank you that your word is always so rich, um, so full of discoveries for us. And we pray that your spirit would come now as we set our minds to devote our minds to study your word, that uh, you would apply it to each of our lives, that you would lead us to trust in your grace and, uh, and, and to obey your commands to us as well as we rest in your love. And uh, so I pray for those who are here that um, you know each one of our hearts. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning uh, we're talking about kind of a controversial theological topic, which is the doctrine of election. Uh, which is uh, which is really the doctrine that means that the, if you know God, if you have a relationship with God, it's not so much because you chose God, but because God chose you. He's the primary chooser, which is actually you know a countercultural thing to say, and especially as Americans, right? Because we're people that very much like to have our choices open. We like to be the choosers, right? We like to choose our presidents. We like to choose our cars and cereal, and because it gives us a sense of control. We're going to def- I'm going to define my own life. I'm going to choose my own life. And so especially when it comes to something like religion, spirituality, what we imagine is that there is, uh, there's a myriad of uh, religions in the world, and we can kind of check out each one and choose which one fits us best. The Bible actually gives a very different picture to the reality of our spiritual life because it, it doesn't say actually that we're on this quest to go find God, but it says that by nature, our nature is actually to run away from God and to flee from him. And so that actually the only way that we can know God and have a relationship with God is if he chases after us and he hunts us down and he goes and finds us and draws us to himself. And um, the fact is that no matter what your background is, any Christian, you ask them, why are you, why are you a Christian? How did you become a Christian? They will always tell the story in terms of what God was doing to draw them. He said, oh, I, you know, I was meeting this person was a Christian, then another person was a Christian. I was meeting all these people, and they were talking to me, and they were breaking down all my preconceived ideas about what meeting a Christian was, and then I started reading things that I'd heard before, and all of a sudden they were making sense, and the Holy Spirit just was like... I was blind and now I could see and all these things were happening to me internally. And what are they saying? They're saying again and again, it was God doing a million things to pursue me. And so that even if we would say, but you know, at the end of the day, I had to make a decision to follow Christ. Nonetheless, 
all these million things God did to bring you to that point. There was far more that God's doing. And I'll tell you, those a million things that God did, those people, those conversations, those uh, you know, struggles that you were going through, whatever it is that brought you to the Lord, um, all of those things were unique to you. God didn't do those for other people. They were unique to you. He specialized them for you. God does not deal with us all in the same way. He deals with us individually and in different ways. And, um, and so our, instinctually we know that it is God who drew us to him. It was not us that went and sought him out and found him. Now, of course, that raises problems. Uh, one of the classic problems of the Bible is to say, okay, well, doesn't God want all people to believe in him and, uh, and to repent and to trust in him? And the Bible does say that. It says that God commands all people everywhere to repent and to believe in Jesus and to find salvation and have your sins forgiven. And God only commands things that are according to his will. His commands show us his character. So in a very real way, yes, it's God's will for all people to know him. And yet also we know that people only come to him if the Holy Spirit does a special work in their heart. You know, Jesus says, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. And when God is drawing us, it becomes irresistible. How do these two things work together? How can they both be true? Well, throughout the Bible, the Bible writers really uh, don't feel the need to explain the paradox. Um, they, uh, they make no effort to resolve this problem. And the reason is because they know that there's going to be many things about God. If God is really God, there's going to be many things about him that are beyond our comprehension. And all they know is that both these things are true. And they know that if I'm going to talk about why I'm a Christian, it's going to be because God came and saved me, even though I was running away from him. That's why. And if he could choose someone like me, as broken as I am, he could choose anyone. He could choose you. And we don't know who he's chosen and who he hasn't chosen. And so it's an open offer to all people to come. God is pursuing people, and there's grace open to all people. And so for the writers of the Bible, for Paul, this doctrine of election that God chooses us is a very practical doctrine. And that's why he says exactly in verse 26 there, you see how he says, consider your calling brothers. Which literally means look at it. Look at how you came to know God. Think about it. Meditate on it. Reflect on it. How did this happen? And you say, wow, it was God who was doing it. And the more you reflect on it, it will shape how you view yourself, how you view God, and, and also how you view other people, which is an important part of this passage. And so this morning, as we uh, look at this paragraph on election, God choosing, um, we are, we're going to move away from the kind of philosophical question of how it works and move more to the practical question of the implications of it, why it's important that we embrace this and believe in it. And in particular, as we look at this passage, two things that come out. That first of all, God chooses, according, God chooses with his grace. The reason God chooses us is not because of something in us, but because of something in him, his grace. It's according to his grace. It's not based on who, who we are and what we can do. It's based on him and what Jesus has done. So first of all, God chooses us with his grace, but also, second, God chooses with his voice. He makes a pronouncement. He says something when he's choosing, which is an interesting thing in this passage, which... Um, You'll see when we get to that point. So, first thing is that God um, chooses 
by his grace. And you'll notice that three times in this passage, Paul talks about how the Corinthian church, this, this group of believers that were in the city of Corinth, uh, they were chosen by God, right? Look at verse 27. God chose what is foolish in the world. And then again he says, God chose what is weak in the world. And then verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world. And this idea that God chooses a special people for himself is a major theme in the Bible. Actually, if you go and you read the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament is about God made this world and there's all these multitude of nations in the world and what does God do? There's one nation that he chooses to be his special people, Israel, right? And actually, if you haven't gone back and read the Old Testament, one of the things you'll find in in Genesis chapter 12 is that when God chooses Israel and says, you're going to be my special people, it was not just for their sake. It was for the sake of all the other nations. I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing. And that's the same with us. The only reason God doesn't just choose us for our sake, he chooses us for the sake of Bellingham and for Whatcom County and for the nations and for the world. And so, so election is supposed to go beyond us, right? That's why God chooses it. But one of the things he insists is, you know, so God chooses Israel. They were slaves in, in uh, Egypt. And God rescues them and they come out of Egypt and they're in the wilderness for 40 years and then they're about to go into the promised land. And right before they go into this promised land, Moses gives them this sermon called Deuteronomy. It was this sermon. And uh, in Deuteronomy, God, Moses makes it very clear. Now listen, you're God's chosen people. He's going to give you this land. But I want to make it very clear that the reason he chose you is not because you're more righteous than the other nations. It's not because you're, you're more special, you're stronger, you're a bit more attractive nation. There's nothing about you. It's because of his promises and because of his grace that he chose you. And this is precisely what Paul says about the Corinthian church here. Verse 26. Look at this with me. For consider your calling, brothers. And not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. What he's saying, it was not because of anything in you it was because of, simply because of God's grace that he chose you. And this is what God does, is he chooses people that the world rejects. This is God's habit, is that he chooses people that the world rejects. And this fact, God's choosing by his grace, it has two powerful effects on our lives and the world. And these are what these, I want to look at these together. What does this grace do? Well, grace... Two things. Grace is, first of all, the antidote to pride. The reason why grace and election is so important is because it is, the, it is the thing that deals with pride. And you'll notice that pride or boasting is a big topic in this, in this passage. You see that? Look at, uh, look at verse 28 again. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, right? Verse 31. Uh, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So what, what's happening in this church is a church of a lot of people who are really proud and they think that they're better than other people. And this pride, this boasting in the church is actually ripping the church apart. And so uh, Paul is writing them and saying, you're boasting is uh, rupturing this church. And so you need to think about your calling. You need to think about election. Now, uh, some of you may have read uh, C.S. Lewis's classic book, uh, Mere Christianity. And uh, if you've read Mere Christianity, you, you'll know that uh, maybe the best, greatest chapter in Mere Christianity is a chapter called The Great Sin. If you turn to page three in your bulletins, um, I put a little excerpt that I want to read to you, you could follow along with. Uh, 
that is from this chapter where C.S. Lewis is speaking about um, what Paul's talking about in this passage. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. This is kind of a longer, longer excerpt, so follow along with me. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I've heard uh, people admit that they are, ba- they, are bad, uh, they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking of is pride or self-conceit. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Powerful statement that pride is the anti-God state of mind. And what Paul is saying is that as long as you think that you are special to God because of something in you, right, I'm because I'm smarter than other people or because I'm more godly than other people or I'm more gifted than other people, whatever it is that you think makes you feel special and that you are not special because of, of sheer grace, as long as we think that way, there will be the seeds of pride living in our hearts and your heart will be filled with what Lewis calls the anti-God state of mind. So we have to ask that question. What are those things that we boast in? What are the things that we love to see? I have this. I know this. I can do this. And other people can't. And you know, there's, when we think that way, there's this kind of rush of pleasure that we get in feeling superior to other people. And it's intoxicating. It's addictive that we want that, to affirm that to ourselves. What are those things? Because those things are the very anti-God state of mind. I'll tell you, you know, uh, when we see it in ourselves, it's always ugly. And uh, actually, just this week, I, on Fridays, I, I play a, a pickup basketball game with some guys up at Western. And um, on Thursdays, we send out a kind of a group text that, uh, to tell everyone whether we're playing or not. And, um, and, you know, in basically any sport that's competitive, I, I have, feel a need to talk trash in whatever it is. And, and so uh, this is true in basketball. So th- this last week, this text went out, and one of the guys texted me back, and he said, I can't wait to swat you in the morning tomorrow. And so I'm just coming back. Oh, I'm going to be raining threes in your face. And, all, and, you know, it's just this back and forth thing. And I'm just telling him how I'm just going to crush him in basketball. And then at the end of it, I say, you know, I wonder if this was a group text or if this was an individual text. And so I go back and I'm like, oh, I'm sending this out. And I'm just, and all of a sudden, and I see him the next day and I was like, he's like, did you realize that was on the group text? I, I no. And we're both ashamed, but that's what pride does. When, you know, when, when we think we're better than someone, and we're really not, we're not, but we grab onto things, anything we can to feel a sense of superiority. And there is nothing that we discussed more in others 
and are more deeply ashamed of when it is exposed in us than that sense of pride when it's made real. And so the question is, what can wash pride out of our souls? What washes pride out of our souls? Because, you know, one thing that's important to say is that the the opposite of pride is not self-hatred, right? We might think that, that the opposite of pride is self-hatred because if pride is about thinking I'm so great, then you say, well, if I get rid of pride, then that's going to be thinking I'm worthless and nobody likes me and I'm terrible. But all of us know that the people that are the most conceited, the most condescending, why are they that way? It's because they're insecure, (laughs) It's not because they think they're great. It's actually because they don't think they're great. And, uh, and actually, pride and self-hatred it turn out to be one and the same. The more self-hatred we have, the prouder we're going to be, the harder we're going to be. And so what we need is we need something that assures, gives us a sense of security, assures us that we're loved, assures us that we're okay, and yet at the same time humbles us, does not make us think we're better than other people. What can do that? What can both say we're special and we're not special at the same time and just in the right way? Election does that. Grace does that. God chooses us not because of something in us, but because of something in him. And when we believe that, when we embrace that, we can't be proud. We can't look down on other people. God knows he's all of our sins and he's loved me. So in, in the face of all of other, uh, someone else's sins or shortcomings, I have to overlook them and, and, and love them. And it fills me with love and not with pride, with gratitude and wonder, not with boasting. And so electing grace, grace is the only antidote to pride in our lives, which is the ugly thing in us. The thing that we think is ugly in everyone else and we are blind to is ugly in our own, our own lives. Grace is the only antidote. But it turns out that this grace, the fact that God chooses us, has this power in my individual kind of psychology and soul, and it works on me as an individual in powerful ways, but it also works socially on the world in powerful ways as well, which actually is maybe more of Paul's point in this passage. And this is the second kind of antidote about... Uh, uh, that grace is, that grace is not only the antidote to pride, but grace is also the antidote to inequality in the world. Grace is the antidote to inequality in the world. Now, if, if you haven't been with us the last few weeks, we've been studying 1 Corinthians, and uh, one of the things that we've seen in this first chapter is that for the, the Corinthian church was a church that was divided. It was fractured. There were all kinds of fights happening. Uh, you know, People were getting at each other. They couldn't worship together. They couldn't be together. And part of the reason was because Corinth was this very uh, diverse port city, which meant there was a lot of wealth coming in, but there was also a lot of, you know, uh, uh, you know socioeconomic uh, classes that were being formed, a lot of, you know, lower classes and upper classes. And people were br- bringing those class distinctions into the church. So someone who, you know, was out in the culture and they would say, oh, I'm very wealthy, I'm very respected, I'm educated, I'm popular, I come from a good family. They bring that pride into the church and they think that they're going to have that status in the church as well. And so it's dividing the church and um, these were all the things that they boasted in their sources of pride. And what Paul thinks is that the antidote to inequality in the church is this idea of considering your election. Thinking about the fact that God chose you not because of something in you but because of something in him. And this is what he says, verse, 20, uh, verse 27. But God chose 
what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And what Paul's saying here is he's saying, you know, on the one hand, what grace does is all the people who are proud and they think they're so great, it lowers their, you know, they're like these mountains. And he's leveling these mountains and bringing down their pride. But what election does is for the lowly, the people who are deep down in the valleys, God reaches down with his electing grace and he grabs onto the weak and the foolish and the despised and he pulls them up. He chooses them and raises them. And so what he's doing is he's leveling the ground and making equality in the world. Election is the antidote to equality in the world. Now, you might think that's an overstatement. And so I want to just give a couple illustrations about why this is true. Because you might think election deals with inequality. Doesn't I would think it would do the opposite, right? If you have these people who think they're God's chosen special people, aren't they going to think they're better than everyone else? Well, no, for one, because it, because it humbles you. But actually, the opposite is true. Because if you look um, at the cultures that had ingrained in, have had ingrained in them the most um, immovable class systems, you will find that often their view of God is not that God is this king who is outside of the universe, ruling over the universe. They often see that God is the universe. Like he is in the world and he's in nature and he's in the creation. And you would think that that would just be, wow, God is so near and he's so loving, but it's actually turned out to be the opposite. Let me give you a couple of examples. The Greek Stoics in antiquity saw God that way. He was kind of the logos that was the very structure of the universe. And what they, how they understood a spiritual life was embracing your place in the universe. You are a part of the universe. And so if you're a slave, being a spiritual person means just embracing the fact that that's your part of the universe, to be a slave. And so you'd be trapped there and be stuck there. This is very similar, actually, in, uh, in uh, Eastern religions, in uh, Hinduism, in India, which has a very similar view of the gods as that they're a part of the universe, have these um, uh, caste systems where you, you, know, you have the untouchables and these lower class, and there's no movement. There's no way to move out of that. And because it turns out that, uh, that, what, that this view of God actually keeps people, in, reinforces this injustice and, and this inequality, but election, what election is about is God reaches down into the lower classes and he raises them up. And it, it encourages upward mobility. And uh, this has been true in a couple of cultures. Let me, let me give you an example. Um, the Dutch, for many centuries, have been a culture that have highly, had a high view of this idea of election, that God chooses us. And uh, there's a guy, Abraham Kuyper, is, was a pastor, a Dutch pastor in the 19th century who became the, uh, uh, the prime minister of the Netherlands in uh, the beginning of the 20th century. And uh, Abraham Kuyper gave some lectures at Princeton in uh, 1898 called the Stone Lectures. And what he was talking, and part of his lectures, he was talking about the art that has come from various civilizations uh, throughout world history. And he says that all of the great civilizations of world history, the pinnacle of their art was always architecture, right? So you look at the ancient Romans and they got this Colosseum that's just this amazing Colosseum. Or you look at the Golden Age of Islam and the great architecture there. Or even if you look at the, you know, the ancient Egyptians, you look at the Incas and the Mayans, they have these pyramids, these structures, and the pinnacle of art is making these giant monuments, but how were those monuments built? They were built on the backs of slaves in the lowest classes. 
And what he was saying is that many people have cr criticized kind of like Dutch culture because, you know, they have these churches that are kind of plain and they're not, uh, not that interesting and they don't have this supreme architecture. But do you know what the height of Dutch art was? What kind of art was it? It was painting. They were painters, right? Rembrandt, Vermeer. And they painted these simple scenes of like, you know, farmers and millers and smiths, you know, these common tradespeople. And, you know, who'd be like similar to like janitors or something in, in our culture. And they were like, these janitors, I just want to paint them. I want to capture them. I want to see what they're like. And you see, why are they so fascinated with the mundane aspects of life? It is because the low and the despised, the common person God has chosen and they've seen a glory in them. And they say, I have to capture them. This person is going to reign with Christ. They've been chosen. They're sons of God. And we got to paint them so we can look at them and glory in them. And so the, the, the pinnacle of, this, of Dutch art was not built on the backs of the lowest class, but was actually glorying in the lowest classes and elevating them. And this, this is what election does. Election like nothing else, affirms human dignity. Election, like nothing else, affirms human dignity. And, you know, this is true also for the Scots. The Scots were another culture that uh, had a high view of God's election. And that's why the Scots were the first society to institute universal education. All people were going to be educated under John Knox in the 16th century. And uh, because even the poor, the poorest of the poor, that, that the world rejects and thinks is worthless, election says, no, they've been chosen by God to reign with Christ. Uh, they are sons of God, so they need to learn wisdom. They need to learn how to reign. They're going to be joint heirs with Christ. They need to be trained. And so this is an incredible thing that election does. And that's why the Apostle Paul sees that equality is an integral result of the gospel, an integral result of grace in our lives and in a community. Listen to Galatians 3. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no, no, uh, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So the reality is, if you want to encourage uh, equality in the world, don't believe in a God who is the universe. You want a God who's outside the universe, a king over the universes, who chooses the lowly and raises them up, who reaches down and gives grace to them. So look at how powerful it is. God chooses by his grace, not because of something in us, but because of something in him. And look at the power. It destroys pride and it destroys inequality in the world. Okay? But there's one more thing that Paul says about election in this passage, which um, actually I was, this last week I was talking with uh, Brandon Ellis uh, after the elder training. Some of you met Brandon and we had a long discussion and then, and then the next day I was looking at this passage and I thought, oh, everything we've been talking about is right in here. He had me all primed. And so I need to share this with you because it was a powerful, a powerful thing the Lord was teaching me this week. And uh, this is the second thing. It's not just that God chooses with his grace, but second, that God chooses with his voice. When God chooses you, he makes a pronouncement over your life. And uh, pronouncements are an important part of being chosen. And you might see that, you know, if any of you have seen the show Master Chef, it's a, it's a TV show, it's kind of a reality show where cooks have this cooking competition and maybe it's pretty similar to any of the cooking shows. And uh, but the shows Shannon and I watch all the time and uh, 
basically every show is high stress, people cooking, there's a countdown, where they present these meals to these judges at the end. And, and if you want to go on to the next show, right, you need to be chosen. And the whole show is about performing, it's about coming up with this perfect food, and at the end of the show, the whole suspense of the show is built up to this kind of last pronouncement, who's in? And it's, you know, they drag it out and all this time and they, you know, they get to the point, they, the judges review all the meals, which one's good, and you're starting to think, okay, who's going to stay in? And, you know, they're just kind of dragging it out and all the, the music and the suspense and then right before they're about to say who stays, you know, they do a commercial right before that. So, that, you know, to add to the suspense, here's a commercial and then you've got to go through the commercial and then finally, what happens? What's the, the climax? Is a pronouncement, Johnny... You will be going on to the next show. You've been chosen. Your meal has been chosen. It was good enough, right? And this pronouncement is, I mean, that's something that we look for in being chosen, of saying you are chosen one. But um, I'll tell you what's interesting in these, in these verses um, where Paul talks about God choosing us, about making a pronouncement of us. He says that the pronouncement, when God chooses us, it's not at the end of the game. It's not that we work hard and we perform for God, and if we perform good enough, then he will choose us. It's reversed. The choosing, the pronouncement, comes at the beginning of the game. Look at verse, uh, he reverses the whole thing. Look at verse 26 again. Consider your calling. Right? What is a calling? That's God's voice saying, bidding you to follow him, saying to you, and we follow. His voice is, is calling to us. It's happening at the beginning of, of, our, of our spiritual life. He calls us, and then it goes on, verse 28. Look at this, an interesting verse. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. What is he talking about there? Even things that are not. He's talking about creation. He said, when God made the world, there was nothing, and he spoke, right? He said, let there be light. And when God speaks, what happens? Things are transformed. Light happens. Things obey him when he talks. There is power to his word. And what Paul is saying is that when God chooses us, it's, it's just like when he uh, started the universe. He speaks a powerful word. He says, let there be light, and it happens to us. And... Um, his spoken word transforms us. So we have to ask the question, what is it he's saying? What is this pronouncement that he says on us that, that transforms us so much? And you see it in verse 30. Look at verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus is for us wisdom, righteousness, holiness, freedom, he is all these things. So that means if you're in Christ Jesus, you, know, you have Jesus in you. He's wrapped around you. And uh, you, he follows you. He speaks for you. He stands for you in God's presence. And um, what God has said is, because you are in Christ, all these things are true about you. You are wisdom. You are righteousness. You are freedom. And when you walk around Bellingham and Whatcom County, you are carrying those things. You are those things. And in the same way that when God says, let there be light, what happens? There's light. And if God says, you are wisdom, righteousness, holiness, and freedom, you are those things. His word affects what he says. His word does not return void to him. 
And I'll just tell you that we know that this is how it works, that, we sh that how human life is supposed to work is we need the pronouncement at the beginning of the game, not at the end of the game, right? Because let me close with this illustration. Some of you have seen uh, the movie The Help that came out a few years ago, great movie about uh, the American South in the 1960s. And, uh, about this woman who's uh, uh, African-American maid in this white woman's home. And the, the woman that she works for has postpartum depression and is completely ne neglectful of her daughter. It's just a wreck. And so this maid is basically raising this daughter. And one of the great refrains that is kind of carried through the movie is when she takes a little girl and she has her sitter on her lap. And she, she just talks to her over and over. And you remember what she says. She looks at her and she says... You is kind. You is smart. You is important. You is kind. You is smart. You is important. She's, and the girl's at the beginning of her life. She hasn't done anything yet. And she's making a pronouncement of who you are. And none of us, when we watch that, we're moved by it. And we say, oh my goodness, this maid is doing an incredible act of love pronouncing this on this little girl whose mother's neglectful. And the question for us is, if that's powerful when a maid pronounces that on a little girl, how much more powerful is it when the creator of the universe pronounces on us that we, in Christ, we are wisdom and righteousness and freedom and holiness? That is who you are. And so we hear that, and we are all those things because of God's grace. He makes that pronouncement on us, not because of what we've done, not because we performed during the game, but at the beginning of the game so that now we can play the game. That's how it works. Um, so we go out into the world not working so that God might choose us, but as those who God has already made his mighty pronouncement over, believing if God could choose someone like me, he could choose someone like you. And whoever we meet, no matter how mess messy their life is now, how broken their life is, we say God chooses the lowest, the despised, and he can raise you up. And so it's with that hope that this week we uh, consider our calling, meditate on how God brought us to himself so that it would uh, teach us to view our, not just ourselves and not just God, but those God has put around us. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for these great promises in these words. Teach us to trust in them. And uh, we thank you that you have uh, saved us by your grace. And Fill us with wonder that we would be secure in your saving grace and we would also be humbled by your saving grace and that we would go out into the world anticipating that you are working in others' lives and that we want to be a part of that work. We pray in Christ's name, amen.